Hello, and welcome to the first episode of a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. I'm W. Keith Timms, audio drama producer and podcaster. In this show, I listen to the first episode of an audio drama, then have a discussion with the creators about their show, their methods, struggles, and successes. Today, we're discussing the first episode of... The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Do you hear that? In the cruel blackness of night, an unknowable evil from beyond time cries out. What dark deeds unfold on the streets of Arkham, and which unwitting souls, innocent or impure, will succumb to the maddening call, the Call of Cthulhu. Part audio drama, part role-playing game podcast, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is a hybrid creation run by Kat Blackert of Omniverse Media. Using the tabletop RPG The Call of Cthulhu as a springboard for collaboration, the cast tells stories inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's works of cosmic horror through a tabletop game session, which is then edited, scored, and in some cases rewritten and re-recorded under Blackert's direction. The show is an anthology of horror comedy tales. The first episode, The Terrible Secret of Lot X, introduces us to wealthy world traveler Estelle Thorpe, who discovers a diary and a lot of items she purchases at an auction. The diary chronicles a series of disappearances in a nearby town, and Estelle assembles a team of eccentric adventurers to investigate. I spoke to Kat remotely from her home. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as a creative type? I often call myself a collage artist. Uh, I can't keep to just one genre or one medium. Everything inevitably, uh, even a simple idea, will get more and more complicated. And I find myself building and building and building. And that's not something that I do alone. I'm somebody who loves working with collaborators. Uh, I started my life as an illustrator because I had really vivid dreams that I wanted mm -hmm. to hold on to. and. Once I got the hang of writing, I did that too. And, and then it kind of, over the years, turned into I did whatever I needed to do to tell a story. I run a company called Omniverse, where myself and a lot of other creators of varying backgrounds in terms of their creative output get together to tell weird genre-bending stories. So uh, have you always had this kind of creative streak? You said you learned to draw because you wanted to record your dreams. Was this back when you were a child? Yeah. Yeah, when I was very, very young. So talk to me about that. What drew you to want to record your dreams? And then how did you develop that into your other artistic endeavors? Like I said, they were vivid. These were things that were stories, really potent stories. And sometimes they felt more real than my actual life. Mm. So I wanted to do everything I could to hold on to them. And in some cases, try to make them real. And uh, yeah. Yeah. If I had to psychoanalyze myself, I'd say that that's probably um, in no small part to do with being a transgender person. There were a lot of elements of those dreams where I was seeing pieces of myself that I couldn't internalize based on the world around me broadcasting their idea of mm. what I was meant to be. Right. Do you do other things like uh, do you do music? I don't I don't make music, um, but I do have a kind of fluency in it. I was a pop culture journalist for a long time, uh, especially when it comes to music. I was a staff writer for the music website Consequence of Sound, which is now known as just Consequence, for over a decade. Mm, cool. I wrote about a lot of different things there as they kind of branched out, but they started with music, and so that became one of the 
primary things that I'd write about. Yeah. Myself, I got started in theater and performance mostly, but I took music for a while and I took drawing classes. I never was very good at, at drawing, but I, I guess if I had stuck with it, it probably could have improved. But I've always liked that, you know? So I find myself drawn to a lot of different arts. And personally, I love the multidisciplinary, like performance art kind of stuff where yeah. it's, um, you know, narratives that are, that are told through many different media that intersect in different ways and so forth, you know. I don't know if you know of Laurie Anderson, the performance artist. Laurie Anderson know. is one of my biggest influences of I all know, time. She's such a hero. <laughs> Laurie Anderson was, uh, she was a subject of the first article I ever published for Consequence of Sound. What is it about multidisciplinary and multimedia storytelling that you like, maybe in favor of more traditional modes of standard narration or things like that? For me, art is in a lot of ways about the act of seeing something. I take a very to bake an apple pie, you must first invent the universe kind of approach. <laughs> At least not, let's not like, 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 like an edict. Like that's not how I want to be, but it is how my brain works. Yeah. And so I kind of like can't help it. I see everything with the kind of dimensionality that once I get into the guts of a story or a project, it starts branching out in a lot of different ways. I just over time have solved those problems for myself in terms of like, how do I do this? Uh, okay, well, cool. I've not mastered that, but I'm good enough at that, that I can keep going with this and plug on through. Uh, I've also existed predominantly in an independent space. I've had the fortune of, of being able to do that for a long time. And so that kind of problem solving that turns into skill sets and, and so forth is just kind of part of the territory. But also, I do thrive on collaboration and working with others, then we kind of inform each other's creative development in different ways. The collaboration is one of my, uh, my biggest skill sets in addition to being able to kind of <laughs> at least uh, poke my way through certain disciplines that I might not have a, a major handle on. But at this point, like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a professional graphic designer and I'm a professional illustrator and, you know, uh, sound design and uh, writing in multi multiple disciplines. And it's, I have ADHD, which might uh, explain a few things. Um, so kind of like jack of all trades, master of none, theoretically, sure. yeah. but I do my best. Can I ask what you do to pay the bills? Uh, it is podcasting. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a situation where that is, for the time being, a workable thing, like podcasting and freelance work and a bunch of different things like uh, sensitivity and diversity consultancy, for example. Hmm. Again, I find myself in a very fortunate circumstance that's more complicated than I can really get into here, but I'm able to live meagerly, therefore live creatively. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and this is Omniverse Media, which you mentioned before, right, which is your production company? Yeah, I have a career that goes back over a decade in, uh, in talk podcasts and also role-playing podcasts, sometimes commonly called actual play, but... I don't really think that that applies to what I do because actual play implies that it is a recording of the document of the tabletop gameplay. Whereas I've always looked at tabletop gaming in the podcast medium and how, insofar as how I've done it as the template for what, uh, uh, for, for audio storytelling. Yeah. Like we create the story together, but the final product could have original score and cinematic sound design and so forth, which is the, the genesis of where uh, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program comes from. But before that show, there were multiple other shows that kind of led to where we are currently insofar yeah. as our, our craft. I guess you have a history as a gamer. 
Yeah, uh, in a lot of different senses. However, when it comes to tabletop gaming, I actually had never played a tabletop game until I played one for a podcast. Oh, that's interesting. So I, it's always been really performative for me. It's always been um, a, a theatrical thing. Even when we did it in this, uh, our first show was called Dungeons and Doritos. That was something where I took character role play to an extent that sort of encouraged everyone else to do that too. Mm, and yeah. it became the basis for that sort of performative role-playing with the intention of making it an audio drama became the basis for what we did going forward. As a contented winner makes her way to her automobile, the sore loser steps out from behind a nearby car. His graying hair is an unwashed mess, hastily combed to the minimum standard that would have gotten him in the door. His heavily scarred face is the only thing wiped clean. Beyond that, his flesh is covered in grime around his neckline and ears. His hands are filthy. He staggers forward, his shirt partway open, clutching something close to his chest, obscured by his jacket. This clearly unhinged man has made his first move. Now it's time for Estelle Thorpe to make hers. He's only a few feet from you. What do you do? I stand my ground, cautiously. Look what they've done to me. I'm him and he killed me. That bastard killed me. Keep your distance. He is holding something out at you. As in he's offering something to me, or he might have a knife. You're not sure. This is a crazy hobo. I mean, you can roll psychology. I will roll psychology. I have a 60 in psychology, and I rolled a 40. Okay. Well, he is heavily unhinged. He has not seen proper sanity for a long time, but he doesn't seem threatening. Tell me a little bit about this show in your own words. It's not quite an actual play, but it's also not quite just an audio drama either. It's kind of a hybrid, right? Yeah, I think of it as a 50-50 blend. Um, I've been using the term RPG audio drama for a long mm. time. Ultimately, the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program is an anthology series where each season is a standalone story that is a horror comedy rooted in historical fiction. Thus, so far, all of our series have been set in the 1920s. And it uh, covers a lot of genres in a way that is uh, organic because we have folks embodying their characters. We're getting performances where the horror is visceral. These characters could die at any moment and they're experiencing pretty tremendous things. And then also the humor is really sharp because they are trying to naturally break this tension. The jokes aren't really conceived, they happen. And as such, the stories are very interesting and winding because there are so many different voices that are collaboratively telling the story. It's based on the work of H.P. Lovecraft, who wrote some really fascinating dynamic works, but was also a deeply problematic product of his time insofar as like white supremacy and stuff. It's yeah. pretty nasty once you get into the things that he believed during the height of his career. Our show focuses on the Lovecraftian mythos through a queer lens for the most part, and maybe not explicitly in a way that's obvious, but Lovecraft's mentality was such that the average person, and in his mind, the average person was a white cisgender Christian man mm -hmm. and a heterosexual. They might look at a being with uh, more than two eyes and uh, strange appendages and weird insect-like wings that's the size of a Volkswagen and have a sort of existential fit and become yeah. totally terrified. Yeah. But that's a really anthropocentric view of things, the lived human experience, the lived human aesthetic as like this dominant force that the entire world revolves around how humans perceive it. But we don't exist in a world where humans are truly the dominant species. Like 
our species is kind of, it's a, it's, it has a deeply problematic impact on the planet. Other species and their perspective on things are just as valid as ours are. The world does not exist to serve us. And so our show is one where, though that creature that I described might be initially uh, troublesome, maybe it is in fact actively malicious, and that's a whole other thing, but perhaps also it is not. Perhaps it is just something that we can't understand right away. Perhaps there's a language barrier that needs to be solved. We also tell stories that are involve folks from different walks of life, genders, sexualities, races, uh, cultural backgrounds that are not represented in Lovecraft's work, though his work has been elaborated on by many, many authors. It's kind of a playground for people because what he did aesthetically was so very impressive that people want to keep building on it. And in many cases, I'd say improving it. This is a debate that I think a lot of us wrestle with, this idea of how can we appreciate the art when the artist is troubling or difficult or problematic, right? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, like right now, I'm, look, I'm looking at all the news about, you know, the new Harry Potter game. And of course, J.K. Rowling has made some questionable and unlikable comments about transgender people. And yet, Harry Potter, I mean, can we, are we allowed to like Harry Potter still? Are we allowed to enjoy her work despite that? And I don't know that there's an easy answer to that question. Um, it sounds to me like you're trying to sort of appropriate Lovecraft and then do something different with it. Yeah, well, and it comes from a very sympathetic place as well. Like, there's a lot of historical indications that Lovecraft was a closeted gay man Hmm. who is, like, dealing with a ton of social baggage. That's complicated. I'm I'm never going to apologize for him. He was an outright monster. He has some very nice things to say about Hitler. But uh, here's another example in addition to to Harry Potter. I love Ender's Game. Mm, Right. Orson Scott Card is a bad person. Orson Scott Card actively like worked against equal marriage in the United States. Yeah. And the messages in that book run contrary to really everything that he came to embody later in his life. I don't know what his personal journey was or is. What I do know is I'll recommend that book all the time, but I'll say buy it from a used bookstore. Yeah. J.K. Rowling is someone who has more money than the Queen of England and a ton of power. She actively used her funds to fight Scottish independence, for example. She's waged a bunch of cultural and class wars using her money as power. But Harry Potter's meant a lot to a lot of different people. And there's a lot of folks who are doing some really great analysis of it and discussing this specific issue when it comes to that series. It is possible for someone to create something beautiful and inspirational and then they themselves to be an asshole. Yeah. A bunch of the kind of like uh, racial and and like anti-Semitic content in her books is not okay, but you can still find something in there that you connect with. Yeah. And as long as everyone's cogent of that and like folks aren't actively funding somebody who is really financially invested in different forms of oppression, it's hard to do. (laughs) Universal, et cetera, wants to keep making money off of Harry Potter and you might be inclined to still want to enjoy Harry Potter, but none of those people need your money. Pirate it. It doesn't matter. I really like what you're doing with Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. As you said, viewing this universe through a queer lens Um, And highlighting the fact that, yes, of course, oh, the gods don't care about us, that they're all insane and uh, monstrous, and that would drive me mad. Well, it it might drive you mad if you're used to being the center of the universe, like a cis white man was back in Lovecraft's day. Yeah. We're not the only people who are doing things like that. Um, There's plenty of uh, authors, especially in the literary sphere, that, uh, that are doing this kind of work. 
I'm really glad to be a part of it because uh, the 1920s and 30s have so many parallels to the sort of social situations that we find ourselves in now. It can be really informative to tell stories in time periods like that that can give us collectively a greater perspective on where our species has come from, the struggles that we've had, and how we might persevere onward. Yeah. Where did the idea come from? Let's let's, let's do a, an actual play, but let's also make it an audio drama. When we were doing Dungeons and Doritos, it did start as a pure actual play. I mean, it started as really a joke of like, what if instead of doing our normal talk show, we just played Dungeons and Dragons? Ha ha ha. As far as I know, the I mean, I'm sure there had been people who were releasing uh, tabletop role-playing sessions as podcasts at that time, but I wasn't really aware of them. It certainly wasn't a genre in and of itself. We did that for a while, kind of in our own little bubble, and had a lot of surprising success doing it. I had always been a fan of audio dramas and different forms of audio narrative storytelling, like Laurie Anderson's work, like yeah. concept records, like The Wall. So it wasn't much of a stretch to start putting music in and, uh, and start adding sound effects. Eventually, that elevated to the point of collaborating with a composer to create an original score and getting cinematic sound design. Yeah. We were doing crowdfunding for our work before Patreon was a thing. And we're sort of organizing through our website different kinds of monthly donation drives. Eventually, we uh, did one to determine what would be a role-playing one-shot that we could that we would do, that our fans would choose the system and we'd just do whatever. Um, we did this a couple times. The second one rolled around and The Call of Cthulhu, which had been a runner-up uh, the first time around, was the winner. We gathered together our usual cast of hosts and um, played the game. And it was a great experience. I'd never played it before. But our game session, what was supposed to be a one-off, was like went for several hours. Yeah. I was like, well, we can't. This isn't a one-shot anymore. We got to do something special with this. So I realized, okay, so I'm going to have to break up this winding investigation-based story and figure out where episode breaks are. And the next thing I knew, I was writing it. Like, we had all gathered together and collaboratively built the story through role-playing. But then I was doing a layer of production that I had never done before. I created a radio framing device that was presenting the episodes as episodes of a radio serial in the 1930s and building out different ways to divide up the action and the scenes and restructure them and move them around so that they felt like satisfying episodes of something. For listeners who maybe are not totally familiar with an actual play style podcast, you know, tabletop role playing is usually a largely improvised session of collaborative storytelling with rules about a genre, fantasy, science fiction, horror, what have you, where the, the story unfolds based on a, a game master or referee who is kind of the one who holds the secret to the stories and helps move things along and then gets the actions of the players to participate. And they, they indicate what they wish to do within the confines of the story. Sometimes dice are used to add a random element to determine success or failure of certain choices and so forth. And, and actual play podcasts, a lot of them are simply recordings of a group of friends playing a game. But your show is a little different because there are some sections which clearly sound like it's a role-playing session. You can hear the game master describing the situation. Uh, you can hear people roll dice and talk about their skills. But then there are other sections of the show which are, to my ears, they sound very much like scripted audio drama content with two people actually having a scene, a discussion about what's going on in the story and that sort of thing. I saw something horrible today. A deranged man 
tried to outbid me. He confronted me afterwards, and he said, I'm Charlie, and he's me. But he got me killed. Like, he said that he got me killed. Was it Pell? Back from the dead. I... I don't think so. Surely someone would have recognized him, but maybe a grave robber. He showed me an organ that was beating on its own. Blessed Mother, are, are you sure? It was like a dream. It happened so fast. He said something like, He who shall not be named killed those boys, and it's my fault. Something about a king making his entrance. I moved to Estelle, kneeling in front of her, holding her hand. I can now see she's much more affected than she's letting on. Beloved, are you all right? Of course. I mean, yes, yes. This is startling and strange, but darling, we might be on to something here. This is why we came to Arkham, after all. Talk to me about how this, the show evolved over time to get to this level of sort of hybridization. Our initial season, which is called The Black Birth, was still rooted in the idea of, well, we want to preserve the role-playing experience, but we want to add to it. We, we built out um, a more extensive original score than we'd ever had before for a single project. We really went intense with the sound design and did a lot of heavy editing, but we still kept it a bit linear. We left in more like uh, out-of-character asides than we maybe would have otherwise. It was a learning process. I saw what was possible, and then what the next story that we told, which was The Terrible Secret of Lot X, the one-off was successful and more than we'd ever bargained for. So we're like, well, let's go back to this. And, and I said, okay, we're going to go back to it, but we're going to do it differently this time. I collaborate with the Game Master, or as we call it in uh, The Call of Cthulhu, the Keeper of Arcane Lore, Luke Stram. He is ultimately the primary storyteller when it comes to writing the scenarios and creating the central narrative that binds everything together. And then I also cast all the, the players as people who are both actors and writers people who are ready to embody these roles to the extent that they're making decisions that shape the entire piece. Mm. So that level of investment is really, really important to what we do. That makes it a, a story that is real. I'll be at the table, whether, whether I'm a player or not, directing in some regards. I'll say, okay, well, that, you kind of deliver that uh, sort of out of character, but that should be more in character, do it again. And it would be really great if we had a moment like this. Can we stop everything for a second and, and, and role play that? The episode that I listened to as your first is the uh, the mystery of Lot X. But I also noticed that there is another episode which was billed as your first called The Black Birth. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you sort of move things around a little bit in your scheduling with that? The Black Birth was our, our first story that we recorded, and that was done basically uh, with the intention of being bonus content, mm. a special. When the show took off and got its own independent lease on life, various aspects of that show that season stopped being relevant and stopped making sense in that context. In its original context, people knew the actors. Therefore, mm. they kind of knew how to understand the way that they behaved and so forth. It was also not explicitly the same level of audio drama of what we have become. So there were a bunch of other decisions that uh, I would never have made now in a million years. But then it was just meant to be an elevated version of a bunch of folks playing a game. You know, I can t I can tell people that we are an anthology series and you can start at, at any season and have a great time and not need to go back. I can say that until I'm blue in the face, but that won't change the fact that people are still inclined to start at the beginning. So we made the conscious decision to move what was our second series to the front of the line to be the experience that people get to know us through first. You say you got some coins ha around here? 
yes, over here in this pile on this table here. Well, let me take a look at them. As you can see, they're all quite old, ranging from time periods all throughout the most prevalent eras of the Silk Road, by my guess. Are there more coins in the trunks? This is everything. This is everything Kenneth. right here. You look through the coins, and one of the coins is interesting. It looks like it's a... Uh... From what Estella's marked it, it's from some small Southeast uh, Asian trading outpost. And it appears to prominently feature a, a delicately engraved red herring. An actual fish? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to make sure there wasn't some sort of a literary device <laughs> on, on the coin. <laughs> Everybody, roll, roll, your, roll your education. You all spend a lot of time really crafting... The story beats, I get a sense that you've probably done retakes of, of lines and that you've um, even, if not actually written out some scenes, at least said, let's do a scene with these two people talking about this and then recorded that. It, it does flow very well. It's not the kind of rough-edged kind of thing you often hear with podcasts like that. We do have extensive rewrites. Um, not that we're changing the flow of the story per se, but that in the process of, say, dividing a, a larger uh, recording session into individual episodes. Sometimes we need to move things around. There are some character arcs that I'm like, ooh, this could be so much more poignant if we are able to build on this or establish this more firmly at an earlier time. So I will do a lot of post-production writing and research. Like the story is created collaboratively, but right. then I go in and spend a, a whole section of our development taking it apart and putting it back together again. I'll have people re-record the lines that they delivered at the table, but in a different context, segueing into a bunch of new dialogue that allows for a better rhythm, pace, uh, further establishment of uh, more backstory. Entire scenes will be added in if they help things coalesce more. Do you think you'll ever just write a story and not leave huh. out the role-playing part? Yeah, that is something that we're exploring. It's weird because I, I recognize that I've pigeonholed my show by hybridizing these two genres. I've experienced a lot of prejudice and a lot of circumstances where I've had to defend myself because some people are vehemently opposed to, say, like actual play and audio drama existing in the same breath. Mm. And that'll usually be based on biases created by low-quality programs. Yeah. And I don't want to have to compete against that. That's a lot of my bandwidth that shouldn't be eroded. I should be telling stories. But I love what we do. I love what we create. At this point, I would hazard to say that it is absolutely indistinguishable what is actual gameplay and what is not. It is entirely hybridized. But I don't need the conceit of dice to tell the story. So what do you struggle with? Huh. I struggle with my nature to overcomplicate things. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, with ADHD, it's, a, it's both a superpower and also a disability. <laughs> Right. My propensity towards collaboration, I've realized in hindsight, is a defense mechanism. Hmm. It allows me to get things done. And being placed in, say, like a monolithic leadership role is really dangerous for me because it highlights the places where my organizational and focus-oriented disabilities break the most often. So having people that I'm bouncing off against all the time and or holding like each other mutually accountable for things, having a less of a conventional power structure, that, that helps a lot. But it is always difficult. I also really don't handle hustling very well or social media in general. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah it yeah. feels like my brain is, is fracturing. Um, <laughs> like I, I have, a, I, I don't know how, how creatives exist in those spaces as intensely as they do because I, I just find them so tremendously distracting. But I also, 
I want my work to be appreciated. I want to increase my chances of of people experiencing these stories. I'm working. We're all working really hard on them. I want them to do well. But um, but I'm a small studio. I don't have a lot of bandwidth. And any time that I'm working, like trying to shift gears in my brain to work in a social media context, is time that I'm not creating the things that people actually want to see or hear from me. Yeah. Or that or that makes me happy. How do you measure success? Well, allow me to get a little bit personal and hopefully not go too off the rails too much of the long story. Sure. Um, I mean, I would like to, it would be great to be able to have a truly livable income from podcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is, who knows if that's even ever possible in a, in a way of still being an independent creator. There are a lot of compromises that have to happen there. Yeah. I've talked a little bit about, in, in vague terms, about my experience of transition and how I wasn't a fully formed person beforehand. Well, part of me waking up to the truth of myself is in tandem to this, this sort of measurement of, of success. When I was a journalist, I would always put a focus on talking about media. You know, in a lot of talk podcasts, people will share what's been going on in their life and stuff. And I was adamant, like, no one wants to hear about that. I don't exist. That was a way of me um, not being comfortable with the reality of my physical presence as a person, it was more comfortable for me to exist as a voice in a box Mm. who was talking about media. That's something that I was okay with. Eventually, even though I had not been talking about myself, even though I had not been signaling what my reality was much, people came out of the woodworks and shared the different ways that, that what I thought was a relatively pointless talk show had helped them. The different times that they'd been in dire situations and the show had lightened their day or the different ways that they made connections with people through the show or because of the show, different kinds of bonds that they'd formed. And it was easy for me to dismiss the work that I was doing up until that point. And then I realized that it was real and that started to change things, especially as I started to change and started exploring my gender in different ways ways that I didn't talk about because I still wanted to be as invisible as possible. Mm. But eventually, because I was doing conventions and being out and about as the job required, folks could see that I was not quite what they may have assumed that I was. Mm. And that was particularly empowering for some folks and led to a lot of conversations where I saw that I didn't feel like I was trans enough. I thought that like I, I had given myself a lot of I had a lot of internalized transphobic thoughts that kept me from acknowledging m- the truth of myself. And that's a really complicated discussion that I'll just gloss over here. But the important part is, is that when people started uh, sharing with me the ways that the conversations I was having, even though I wasn't directly addressing what was going on with me, they still saw that it was a part of it. They still saw a part of like who I was and how I was expressing that in a positive way, in a way that made a difference to them. Seeing myself through them, even though I wasn't offering the full extent of myself in any regard, was a part of me seeing myself at all. So since then, from those respective launching points uh, that prompted my own growth, that's always been a source of success for me. Like I know that if I'm putting out work and I'm doing it honestly, if I'm telling stories that I'm passionate about, if I'm making things that I would like to see in the world, and I'm doing it in a way that is kind and thoughtful as I know how to do, then somebody somewhere is having a positive experience. And even if I don't know about it, that I've done enough, I could die right now and I will have done enough. Hmm. So I'll just keep trying to 
to tell stories as best I can. And whatever quote unquote success in terms of sustainability, survivability that I'm able to get, that's fine. Dear friends, all of you have expressed to me at different points in time a certain degree of curiosity in the unusual, in the strange circumstances and eldritch secrets woven into the very fabric of New England, and especially Arkham. Well, it just so happens that yesterday I stumbled upon something of a genuine mystery. And I caution you, it is not for the faint of heart. I love mysteries. Well, <laughs> let's hope this one does the trick then. Well the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program has evolved the actual play podcast format, turning the events of a play session into raw material for a more polished product, while preserving the surprises of improvisation and the familiar setting for fans. You can listen to the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program on most major podcast platforms, or see our show notes for more information. The first episode of is written and produced by W. Keith Timms. All the opinions expressed in this show belong to the people who expressed them and not necessarily to anyone else. The theme song is Mockingbird by David Mumford. This show is a production of Alien Ghost Robot Creative Media. If you want more information, want to sign up for our newsletter, or are an audio drama creator and would like to be on the show, visit our website at thefirstepisodeof.com. We're happy to be a part of the Audio Drama Lab, a Discord-based resource for audio drama development and networking. Check it out at audiodramalab.com. Keep telling stories. It's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. Until next time.